So tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And so thus far we've seen the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ, all in chapter 1. You'll call him Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. Then we've had the child Jesus Christ, right? We have the whole, all, the, all those prophecies about the child Jesus, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, but he'd come out of Egypt, and he'd be called a, Naz- a Nazarene, and ultimately not meaning a Nazarene like the Old Testament says, but coming from the city of Nazareth is the interpretation, and we talked about that last week. So tonight as we go forward, from that, where we left off with Jesus and his family, Joseph and Mary and Jesus being in Nazareth, that small insignificant village there in the north, the Galilean region, we have about 18 years of silence. You know, it just kind of goes, well, actually from the time he was 12 and the story of him at 12 in the Gospel of Luke, from there we have 18 years of silence, and now it's going to break. So the Gospels have just not a lot on Jesus' birth, his genealogy, and his childhood, and then the one event when he's 12 there in Jerusalem from the Gospel of Luke, and then he's presented to us. So we pick it up tonight in chapter 3 where he begins his ministry and we can really say, like, and so it begins. You know, a trillion galaxies out there in this universe. A trillion. That's mind-bending. A trillion galaxies. Planet Earth is the center of the universe. God created us, his most prized creation, humanity, in his image. Let us make men, men and women, in his image. And he did. In his triune nature, he made us in his image to be fruitful, to be blessed, and to multiply. It's a glorious plan. The whole universe, all those trillions of galaxies, revolve around you and me, humanity, here on planet Earth. The history of man from the dawn of creation, Adam and Eve. The promises of God, the power of God, the presence of God, always moving toward this glorious plan when we've been there 10,000 years, right? We'll no less time to sing his praise than when we began. All of time on this planet is moving toward eternity and the glory to come. And yet, time, space, and matter is significant. And life does matter. And in the timeline of humanity, about 6,000 years, we read in Galatians that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born under the law of God, to redeem those who are under the curse of the law of God. Because we can't save ourselves by being good people. And I think it's fascinating when we come to Matthew chapter 3 and Jesus being baptized by John and beginning his earthly ministry that God, Emmanuel, came to planet Earth. If you really wrap your mind around that, that when, when Jesus comes on the scene in this text in just a moment, it's God in the flesh presenting himself as the Messiah of Israel, the King of the Jews, and the King of the universe. And coming to serve us and to save us from our sins. And with that in mind, we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. In those days, Luke's account gives us who's all in power, all the different Pilate and all these different people. He gives us the political timelines, if you want to know. That's in Luke. But in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, and John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighted upon him, and suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the story of the baptism of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. All four Gospels tell us things about John the Baptist. And they give us different things. It's kind of interesting because sometimes you feel like you read Matthew and Mark, and Mark just seems like a shorter version of Matthew. But sometimes when you read a story and you look at all four Gospels, you'll get different insights from all of them. For example, in Mark's Gospel, it all starts with John the Baptist. It literally says, if you were to go to Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when John the Baptist began preaching in the wilderness, fulfilling this passage of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So Mark begins his gospel with this event. This is the flashpoint. Luke, of course, tells us about when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and went to visit Elizabeth, her relative, and John was in the womb of Elizabeth, and he jumped in the womb. The baby rolled and jumped in the womb when Jesus came in the room. So this isn't the first Jesus-John encounter. We have that one with two babies in the womb. Like, wow. That's a pretty important detail, don't you think? It wouldn't be in the scriptures if it didn't mean something important. It's in the scriptures. Two babies in the womb and one responding to the other when they walked in the room. John, the baby, third trimester, second trimester, rolling around responding when Mary pregnant with Jesus walks in the room. It's powerful story there. It's significant. John's gospel gives us all kinds of details of John the Baptist, written by John the Apostle, of John the Baptist, and all kinds of details concerning him there. John the Baptist's ministry was a ministry of repentance. He preached repentance. Jesus, the first words out of Jesus in the gospel of Mark is repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus preached repentance. The day of Pentecost is preaching repentance. The apostles preach repentance. Paul preached repentance. Repentance being that we have to turn from that which is contrary to God to turn to God. 
And John the Baptist preached a message to the people to turn from their sins and set their hearts toward the Lord. Repentance. That's what his ministry was. And in that ministry of repentance, people were coming and confessing their sins because repentance and confession, they certainly go together. And so this was his ministry. And then when people were being baptized, their baptism was really like a baptism in the, the Jordan River there of, and perhaps other places, a reflection of washing away of sin. So it's a little different than the Christian baptism, and we'll get to that later on before we're done tonight. But it's similar, but we have a fuller baptism, what ours represents. But if we went out to the wilderness of Judea and we're like, hey, man, this preacher's tearing it up. Man, we hear he's a prophet, and this is the most exciting thing since the time of the Maccabeans. Or you know, I tell my wife I'm sorry, and I, you know, I, tell, you know, I tell the employees I'm sorry. I tell, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, and I, I, I restore this. Like Zacchaeus when he repented with Jesus in his house. We would do something like that. Like We're going to go in the water, and, and, and going in the water, I would feel, and you would feel like we're being cleansed of our sins, like they're being washed away. It would have that feeling to it. And we come out of the water, like, I feel like a brand new woman, a brand new man. I, I, I feel great. I feel like I've been forgiven. And so what's next? See, they, John prepared them like a part one. But what's next is Jesus. Now, when a believer gives their life to Christ and we have repentance, we're, we're turning from our sins and we're receiving Jesus at the same time. There's no delay. For them, contextually, for some people, there was a delay. Because he kept saying, someone's coming out for me whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loosen. And they're thinking like, well, you know, we're thinking you're probably the greatest prophet that ever lived. Which is exactly what Jesus said about him. Like, we have never seen anyone like you. So Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, any of them, like, we have never seen anyone like you. We're thinking, that's right. And I'm telling you, I'm not worthy to loosen the sandal straps of the one who's coming. So make straight the crooked path level plain the valley and bring down the mountains and let's let's get serious with God so that's what his message was that's how he was that was his ministry and who was like John the Baptist no one there's no one like John the Baptist now as we look at this text it's really all about John and Jesus it starts with John then he talks about Jesus then it's John baptizing Jesus and their dialogue together so there's three things we're going to see in this text tonight John's divine destiny, John's testimony of Jesus, and the baptism of Jesus. Those are three things we're looking at tonight in their context with application for us. Tonight we get some application for us. In verses 1 through 6, it is a description of John, like we said, his confessing, people confessing sins, him baptizing people. But it really revolves around this passage from Isaiah 43, the voice of one crying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, Matthew, led by the Holy Spirit, quotes this passage and says, John is fulfilling it. Now, when the angel Gabriel appeared to John's dad, Zacharias, and he and his wife Elizabeth had always wanted children, it had been their prayer. If you've known anyone that's ever been barren or people that couldn't have children that want to have children, it's such a heavy thing. It really is. And so in his latter part of his life, there doing his once-in-a-lifetime ministry by lot, there in the temple, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said, you're going to have a son. 
And when he described what the son would be like, he said, your son will be the one with a voice crying in the wilderness, and he'll prepare the way of the Lord. So Gabriel, one of the, you know, there's Michael, Gabriel, and probably Lucifer, you know, the three great archangels. Lucifer, of course, Satan, the fallen angel. But this great angel, Gabriel, said to Zacharias, this is who your son is. Now, Zacharias, the moment he would have heard that, was like, how's that going to happen? I'm old. Well, that got him in trouble, right? Gabriel says, you're not going to talk for a while because you have a precedent for barren women having children, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. So you should, you should have had faith right here when I spoke this to you. So you're not going to talk for the entire pregnancy. But I'm telling you what, as you watch that baby develop in your wife's womb, he's one whose voice is crying in the wilderness who will prepare the way of the Lord. So in his mind, he would know, my son is the person Isaiah the prophet was talking about 700 years before. Now, who knows the father-son conversations he had? You know, like dads have conversations with sons, like first day of kindergarten, first day of t-ball, you know, son swing straight, you know, that kind of stuff. First day of soccer, score more goals than anyone else, you know, the things that dads say, right? Who knows if at some point, certainly probably happened, when his dad would tell him the story of his birth against, you know, like, can you imagine, this picture John when he's going to school, like, his classmates like, dude, why do your parents like twice as old as mine? Because they are. Wait, those are your grandparents, right? It's grandparents' time. The grandparents are dropping off the kid at school. No, those are my parents. It was a miracle that I was born. His dad most likely would have explained to him along the way, you're the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. What a radical thing to think about. And just sense that, that sense of purpose and destiny from your dad, this priest, this destiny, this purpose on your life, and to think about it in first grade, in junior high, in high school, collegiate age, post-collegiate age, maturing age, a man moving toward his 30s and just knowing like, between you and the Lord, you are that person. That was his divine destiny. When he was one cell in his mother's womb against all odds biologically, every cell that replicated itself in the womb of Elizabeth, making this person John the Baptist, he was fearfully and wonderfully made, like Psalm 139 says. And no one was ever made like him before nor after. And there are other people God spoke of before they came. Think of Cyrus. We just had him in Ezra. God spoke through Isaiah of Cyrus, the king of Persia, 200 years before he was born. And they showed Cyrus, dude, you're the guy that Isaiah said. He's like, I sure am. Jews go home and rebuild the temple. So God can do that, and it's not limited to John. And, but then you think about this with Jeremiah 1.5, where God says, before I formed in the womb, I knew you, and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. What all this is telling us is that John had a divine destiny that was unique and personal for him. Which brings us to another thought in a universe of trillions of galaxies where the angel Gabriel tells his dad he's the guy. When they ask John who he was, because he says, I'm not the Christ and I'm not Elijah, I'm not this and that. They said, who are you? And he goes, I am the one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness saying, make straight the way of the Lord. He knew who he was. He knew he was that verse. 
And in case there's any confusion, later on, John says, who'd you go to see? I tell you, he's the one, the voice crying of the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So the confirmation of his identity and destiny in a universe of trillions of galaxies was spoken by Gabriel. His father would have known it. He knew it. He believed it. He spoke it and proclaimed it when questioned about who he was and what his purpose in the human experience was. And Jesus affirmed it. And so it brings us back to a universe with trillions of galaxies to you and me where Jesus said this, he knows the hairs on our head. Now, we don't open the scriptures and say, read something about your life that says this is who you're going to be in the year 2023 in the year of our Lord. But we do read in principle what the plan is for the church, for disciples, for the body of Christ. We know that God's given each one a gift to use, to be stirred up for his purposes in the kingdom. He knows that we know that we're called to be disciples, and in losing our life, we find it. In laying down our life, we gain it. We know that we're his workmanship. There's a specific work of art our life is meant to be, each one of us. So though we might not think our life is as grand or as exciting or even as terrifying as John the Baptist, concerning he was beheaded, for his declaration of truth by the political powers. We just have to under Well, he's the greatest prophet. Jesus said he's the greatest prophet. We just have to realize we're the greatest who we're meant to be. Because no one's meant to be you. And we're just reminded we're all uniquely you, me. I always talk about Mark Coca, Sam's son, when we dedicated him. And I think, like, well, when he's 80, it'll be the next century. It'll be... When he's 80, he'd be like 2102, right? I'll be 2102. <laughs> I have a new grandbaby today, right? Some of you know. Hannah had her baby today, right? Grandbaby number eight. Louise was born today. It was an intense day. It was, it was stressful. It was very stressful. She was upside down. She's doing this. And, um, you know, it was, yeah, it was intense. And, uh, but got the news at 5 o'clock today that Louise was born into the world. And so we're all... Very excited about that. I got a picture of her with her mom. And this message was prepared apart from anything to do with that. But I got the visual of the newborn baby Louise out of the womb on her mother's chest. And I thought, this is the most natural, beautiful thing that God's designed in the human experience. There's nothing like pregnancy and there's nothing like labor and delivery. The travail and then the joy of a child. The Bible talks about it. And the uniqueness, and I think, I can only imagine, you know, for, for Louise, her dad's a pastor, her mom's a pastor's wife. Her grandpa Joe's a pastor, and Grandma Jen is a pastor's wife. Grandpa Jim's a pastor, and Grandma uh, Christy is a pastor's wife. So, pastoral parents, all sweet pastoral grandparents, what, would, what does the Lord have for Louise? My wife's middle name and my mom's middle name of all things. Louise Gallagher. What are she be like in her 80s in the year 2103? I won't know. Probably neither of you, any of you will either. Uh, see, the value and uniqueness of each life is for each generation. And I just... I think about when I read books from famous people in the past, like you got like a Shakespeare or a Walt Emerson, or just you think of Webster or Lincoln and these guys and Spurgeon. I always match up 
U.S. presidents with famous preachers at the same time, or the colonial era with Washington as our president, and the British and the French, and all that stuff, and Whitfield preaching in the colonies, and George, and I, I just, my mind just goes this way, and I see all these things, and I think, this was their time, this was their timeline, this was their timeline, and I think, this is ours, and that will be hers. And this is what I, I want to come on this thing. It was his divine destiny to be John the Baptist and do what he did. And here's the thing when we think about our divine destiny. It's, it's the, it's the, whether it's fulfilled or wasted, right? Because life is fulfilled or it's wasted. And most people do waste their life. So whether life is fulfilled or wasted is determined by the person who has it. It's self-determination, whether we choose to surrender all the life and of our life to the Lord and fulfill it. And, you know, you might be like the son that says, I'm not the parable that Jesus said. The son that goes, I'm not going to go work in the field. Then he doesn't, but then he decides I'm going to, I did the wrong thing. He goes and works in the field, and it's a good ending. But then there's people that are like the other son that says, sure, dad, I'll go work in the field. But then they walk away from the field. It's a human experience. Who can know it? So we can't change yesterday. There's no sense of anxiety for tomorrow because we're not guaranteed it. So it's always about today and the value of the call of God on our life today, that divine destiny in our life today. That's what, we, that's what we need to do. The divine destiny for today. It's, it's to be so valued, the gift of life, your gift of life that God's given you and what it is today. That's why I have goals every day. That's why the night before I set the next day, this, the big three of the next day, 6 to 10 in the morning, 10 to 2, 2 to 6, 6 to 10. I, I set it before me. I see it before I go to bed. I don't wake up wondering what the day holds. I wake up knowing what I'm getting after with the Lord. And those are the specific things, but every day begins with that time in his word and that time in prayer always. But having, it, it's going to be gone. And may I speak for everyone over 60 here today? Didn't we get here quickly? I mean, how fast did you get to 60? It almost seems like a bad dream. Like, how, like, it's so weird. I'm a California kid, and I'm 62, and, like, it's so weird. Like, how did this happen? Like, I really, like, you know, you kind of, when you're 40, like, okay, I'm 40. I get it, yeah. Then you're 50, it's like, okay, yeah, big 5-0, I get it. You know, we've accepted it by now. But when you're 60, you're like, now, hang on. Is there any way to stop this conveyor belt? There's just not. One day, one week, one quarter, one year, a decade, it just keeps going. And you realize, like, hey, there's things I can do between 60 and 70, but I probably can't do them when I'm 80, so I should probably do them when I'm 60. You start thinking like that. It's also short, isn't it? We need to redeem the time. And we need to value our life and the dignity of our life. And we need to value all life and the dignity of all life. I believe there's a divine destiny for every life. And all the human people that I don't understand and all the deformities or mental handicaps or physical handicaps. I, I can't explain them. I don't have to. They're, it's God's universe. And this is a sinful fallen world at the expense of Adam. But I do know this. I, ha I need to value all life. And I have to remind myself, one of my key things I've been telling myself this year is to respect every human life. No matter how marred it is from the glory that God had intended for it no matter how far it's fallen from what it was intended for, from Genesis 1. 
I need to respect that life. And if I can respect that life, I'm going to be more fruitful for the Lord, and I'll have the heart of the Lord. It's a good place to be on the day of the Lord. Some people never get rid of their racisms, their, their opinions, and those things that don't even matter. Man, if you can be free from all that stuff and just respect the value and dignity of all life, you'll be fruitful with yours and the Lord, for sure. We can do it because the Lord wants us to do it. As we seek to fulfill our life to the fullest, we need to look at other people's lives and see the potential of it. Even like when my sister was out of her mind on the streets, cursing at street lights, pushing a grocery cart around, and just to see her five years sober and the good fruit of her life, God can turn it around. God is able. God is able, you know, and so, like, as much as I want to encourage us from the, the, the divine destiny upon John's life, I want you to look at homeless people, difficult people, angry and unhappy people, mean and cruel people, and see the divine destiny upon their life. And just know that God is able. The second thing we learn from John is, is his testimony of Jesus. Now, in this text, he says, he's greater than me. Okay, so who's Jesus? Well, he's the one who sent us straps. I'm not worthy to untie. All right, so everyone's thinking, you're the greatest prophet we've ever seen, and you're saying someone's greater? But wouldn't you know, Jesus is the prophet, capital P, that Moses talked about. So John is the greatest prophet you've ever seen, except for the one that is the prophet, Jesus Christ. And they're both sharing planet Earth at the same time. They're even physical relatives through the moms. And, and on the day of his baptism, Jesus' baptism, it's the greatest prophet ever with the one being baptized, Jesus, who is called the prophet in the law by Moses. Wow, that's awesome. John said he's greater, so much greater than me, and you think I'm the greatest ever. He's so much greater than me, I'm not worthy to untie his shoe, his shoe strings. You know, like I'm just, it's not even for me to do. Then he said he's also the one who will give you the Holy Spirit. I baptize you in water for a cleansing and a washing away of sins, but he's going to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, this would get your attention for uh, being a good Jew at the time, because we do see in the Old Testament that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David or came upon Gideon and Samson. And so they have the idea, like, sometimes God, whose Spirit just, he just puts his Spirit on somebody, and they, they can do superpowers. It's like they have superpowers, so the idea of the Holy Spirit being a, a power or a person, a presence of God, existed in their theology, but not how we think of the Holy Spirit. So when he said that Jesus is going to give you, this, this Messiah is going to give you the Holy Spirit, they're like, wow, like superpower, power from heaven, which the Spirit of God is in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and it's, it's the Spirit who lives in us that transforms us from glory to glory. The Bible tells us when we receive Christ and we're born again, the Spirit of God literally comes in us. And he indwells us, making us the temple of God, our earthly body. And he leads us and guides us and discernment in all truths and confirms the scriptures and says yes to that and no to that. And when you grow in the Lord, you'll learn to understand and recognize when he's saying yes and no. And we say that, what do we call that? Being spirit-led. The Spirit will never contradict the scriptures. He'll confirm the scriptures. And God is triune in nature, Father, Son, and Spirit. And there's a mystery to it. The Father's in glory. The, the Son has a throne. The Spirit's described as the seven spirits of God in heaven. 
And yet Jesus said it's to our advantage that he went to heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, ever living and interceding for us, and he sends us the Spirit. And so when all those people went forward at the Harvest Crusade, back in the summer at the pond, or any men made a commitment to receive Christ today with Ryan Reese at the men's conference in Anaheim, the Spirit of God came in them. He came in them, and they are made alive. The light's on in somebody's home. And now he's going to guide them and confirm the truth and lead them and direct them and give them discernment that's true, that's false, and here we go. And make them more like Christ. It's a beautiful thing. But for them, it's like, oh, the Spirit. Man, the Holy Spirit. What's that? Oh, that's... And he's going to baptize you with fire. Whoa. Now, holy fire. Okay, so fires. There's, they all knew what fire is like. And then there's holy fire, like the burning bush when God spoke to Moses. So, like, okay. So, he's greater than you, and you're pretty great. And he... He's going to give the Spirit. He's going to baptize with the Spirit. Now, I went under the water, but he's going to give the Holy Spirit. David, Gideon, okay. And then he's going to baptize with fire. I'm thinking that's judgment because he said it's the wrath is coming. The axe is coming. So that fire, like, oh, it's, a, it's judgment. So wait, the one that's coming is going to judge like with a fire. Fire is a funny thing. Fire is used by John the Baptist to describe judgment in the day of the Lord. That's a sobering thing. Fire. It's judgment. Now, Jesus would himself would say, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to me. He's, he's the judge. When the books are open, when people give an account, the unbelievers, he, he's the judge. He's, 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 that's his business. Let him be the judge. Let us be the instruments of grace. And let us proclaim grace. But when you bow the knee in time, you can be saved. Or you bow the knee in eternity and you're cast out. You know, it's one or the other. You're going to bow the knee. He's the judge. So John, John testified of Jesus. He said, he's greater than me. He's going to give the spirit. And he's got the fire of judgment. But in the gospel of John, he tells us when he saw Jesus, he said, this is the son of God. So he said that Jesus is God's son. So the Messiah that he's confirming isn't just the king of the Jews. He's the son of God. Then he said he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29 and one thirty five. I know them well because when I first got saved in 1987, going through Gospel of John for the first time, I had them written on note cards. I don't know why. But both those passages, just I was drawn to them, that Jesus, John the Baptist said he's the son of God and he's the lamb of God. And I was like, whatever does this mean? But it means something. I had no concept of the Passover lamb or anything like that. But they did. And he said this in the other gospels. I did not know who the Messiah was, but the father told me, when you see the spirit descending upon him, you'll know he's the one. And when he baptized Jesus, he said, hey, that's exactly what the father told me. He is the one. So he testified of Jesus as one greater than himself, of one who gives the spirit, of one who, judges, who is the judge with fire, that he's the one who's the son of God, and he's the one who's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He just laid it all out there. F, all the above, right? Just all the above. We have a testimony of Jesus too, don't we? He essentially had those four things, Son of God, Lamb of God, the Spirit, and Judgment. But 
many of you know, this is the year, 35 years for me being married and 35 years being a Calvary Chapel pastor. And since a lot of people will know me for being a surfer, 50 years as a surfer. My 50-year anniversary as a surfer, 35 married, 35 in ministry. So this has been a reflective year. I've thought about a lot of things this year, being 62. And 35 years of ministry, you, you learn things. And there's people that are just really strong and healthy with the Lord. And they're a great testimony of the Lord and a great witness of the Lord. And they don't manufacture it. They're not striving. They're not weird. They're not religious. They're just, they're just real, right? They're just real people being transformed by the Spirit of God to the glory of Christ. And they become a testimony. I was thinking about this. Back there in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. So to testify of Jesus is to be his witness. But, you know, we, I think we all know this. You can tell people about Jesus all you want. And people do need to hear the truth. Britt Merrick, the famous preacher from Carpinteria, surfboard maker from Channel Island Surfboards, he, he did this whole study because he was an evangelist. He is an evangelist. And he did this whole thing on evangelism. And I remember him saying that essentially they determined that anyone that gives their life to Christ has heard the gospel 30 times, 30 times as an average before they came to Christ. So think what Paul said, one person water, one plants, another water, and the Lord gives the increase, Right. And there's just all kinds of plethora of witnesses and testimonies that draws to the Lord. Even in my book, I have a whole chapter about how God had different people share Christ with me. And it, it gave me a new insight I hadn't had before. And it was moving me toward the time when I would give my life to the Lord in 1987. I was thinking about this. You know, when you're 62, and you older people can appreciate this, and you younger people, you can aspire for this. But I'll tell you the testimony that really works when you want to be a witness for Jesus, I'm going to tell you what I think are things that really work as a testimony. Because I've, I've done street witnessing. I've gone door to door. I've walked up the beach handing people tracks trying to share Jesus with them. And, you know, that, that has a place. You know, like, it, it really does. We, we appreciate that. So we're not demeaning that. But people bring people. When you study the Harvest Crusades or Billy Graham Crusades, no one, very rarely does someone just walk into the pond to hear Greg Laurie on their own that doesn't know the Lord. Somebody brought them. See, the, the BGEA, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, learned this way back in the 40s that people bring people. And ultimately, people who have a good testimony of Jesus at work, in the neighborhood, with their family, it, it, it puts a good taste in people's mouth, and then they get invited to a Billy Graham crusade or a Harvest crusade or somebody loves you, or Ryan Reese, or whatever, and they say, yeah, I want to go. They want to go because you've had a good testimony. Your life is why they're going, not because there's a harvest bumper sticker on the back of your neighbor's car. That's impersonal. They're going because your life has salted them for the thirst of the living God. And there's a testimony. That's why they're going. The things that draw people to the Lord in our life, our testimony, because see, John had a testimony. We have those truths, but really, people are watching. Our... Charles Spurgeon said this best Your actions speak so loud, I can't hear a word you're saying. You know, uh, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words, right? To be loving is the number one testimony of being a disciple. To really be loving, just to truly love and care about people. Well, the Holy Spirit shed upon our hearts. We have the love of God shed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. So, I mean, that's certainly possible. Whatever love we're lacking, which we are, the Lord says he can give it to us without limit by his Spirit. 
to have peace. Some people always have chaos and confusion. You ever notice that? And some people are like, brother, you need to get saved. And they got, you know, like, uh, they got the right bumper stickers on their windshield for the Lord, you know, the right radio stations. But they don't have peace. They're always in a hurry. They're rude. They're abrasive. And they wonder why their friends don't want to go with them to the crusade or the men's conference. Because they're not loving and they don't have peace. Or they're not nice to their wife. Or they kick the dog. You know, you just like, your action speaks so loud we can't hear a word you're saying. Love, peace, joy, humility. Purpose. When you know you have divine purpose and people see you got your hustle on and you persevere through things because it's unto the Lord, man, you've got a great witness. People are drawn to it. Service. Most of all, well, they'll know we're Christians by our love, but the, the servant of all is greatest in the kingdom of God. So really love and service to me are the bookends. You can put a lot more in there besides peace, joy, humility, and purpose. But John's testimony was words, but in the end, all those relationships that we have with neighbors and the community and sports teams or things, when you're weird, it makes Jesus look weird. When you're rude, it makes Jesus look rude. When, you, when you're disinterested, it makes Jesus look disinterested. When you always talk and never listen, it makes Jesus look like he always talks and never listens. Yeah? See, our testimony is our life. And the more we become like Jesus in trials, tribulations, tragedies, and in triumph, the better it's going to be. So we're reminded that we have a testimony. And then finally, we have the baptism of Jesus. And this, of course, is an amazing thing that theologically, it's kind of a paradoxical event. So we have the John's divine destiny. We have John's testimony of Jesus. And this final element, the baptism of Jesus in verses 13 through 17. The greatest prophet is baptizing the one who is the prophet. What a scene. The Father speaks out loud from heaven. The Spirit's identified by descending. It's a triune moment in a triune universe with triune God who loves us and made us triune as well, spirit, mind, and body. And there's confirmation, the Spirit like a dove. But John the Baptist is like, no, this is all wrong. Like, Jesus, like, I, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, permitted to be so because it's fitting to fulfill all, all righteousness. So in a red-letter Bible in Matthew's Gospel, the very first words that are in red are permitted to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And isn't that what Jesus did, right? He fulfilled the law and the prophets. No sin. He fulfilled all righteousness because we can't, and he did on our behalf. His water baptism with them, with John, was to identify with the people. He's identifying, like John's message the people responding, he's identifying with it. Even though he's the one that they're all being pointed to, he's identifying with it. And then the Father gives confirmation, but he's identifying with it. And when we look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, when we, that famous passage with Jesus on the cross, and we look at some of these passages where it says that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. So, we also know from the New Testament, God made him who knew no sin become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. But also later on in Isaiah 53, it says in verse 10 that when you make his soul an offering for sin, and then in verse 11 it says, for by his knowledge my righteous servant Jesus will justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus being water baptized is 
him bearing our iniquities. He didn't have any sin, but even identifying with our sin, with the baptism of repentance, he's identifying the very beginning of his ministry, the Father speaks, the Spirit descends, and he is identifying with sinful humanity by being baptized like the, every other sinner, male and female, whatever age that had been baptized by John the Baptist. He's identifying with them as he identifies with us. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 that he had become in all things like us. So he took on the form of a man and he, he knew temptation. Theologically, how do we even explain that? But it's true, he did. That he can ever minister to us in time of need is a faithful great high priest who's always there for us. He had become like us in all things and really as he's showing us the Father, no one has seen the Father but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, he has declared him. Even in showing us the Father and even in speaking as the prophet, the voice of God on all matters of humanity, still as the suffering servant and taking the lowest place time and time again, he's identifying with us. So in identifying with us sinners in water baptism, that's the prequel, just a warm-up to when he's going to hang on the cross and die on the cross for our sins, paying a death sentence. Really, when Barabbas gets released by Pilate and Jesus takes his place, that's the ultimate moment because, see, we're, we're the Barabbas in us all. Barabbas should have been the one crucified, not Jesus. And when he was released, that's like us being released because Jesus died in our place. That's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And in his water baptism, he identified with us. But the beautiful thing for us is where it says in Romans 6 that when we're baptized, we're identifying with him. <laughs> Stay with me. When he was baptized by John the Baptist, he's identifying with sinners. All the way to the cross, dying in our place, he's identifying with sinners. Fulfilling Isaiah 53, which I just read portions of. But when you and I are water baptized... We're identifying with him. He's identifying with our sins at John's baptism, but when we're baptized, we're identifying with forgiveness in him and the resurrected life that we're raised to by the power of the Spirit and the hope of heaven that we have with him. For even as in Christ all die, so too in Christ all will be raised up. So when we go underwater, we're identifying with him dying for our sins, but when we come out of the water, we're identifying with the eternal life he's given us through his victory on the cross and the empty tomb. So he identifies with us this way, but when we get water baptized, we identify with everything that he's done for us. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal will put on immortality, this corruptible will put on incorruptible. Water baptism speaks of that. So the baptism of Jesus is his identifying with us to bring us to a place where we'll repent and believe and be baptized in him to identify with him. Isn't that awesome? He's identifying with people that can't save himself, and then when we're baptized, we're identifying with the one who has saved us. Ah, oh, the wisdom and the glory of the Lord. It's so beautiful, isn't it? What it all means is this, WG. It's all about divine destiny, all of it. You didn't make yourself in the womb. You didn't decide when you're going to come into the universe and time, space, and matter. The Lord determined all that. And for the one who... The one who believes all things are possible. If you believe your life has value and destiny, it does. And God will confirm it. But if you don't think it does, well, that's your unbelief will keep you from it. Of course, without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
So we believe in that destiny that we have from the Lord. We understand our testimony that we have, and we let Christ work in our life daily and transform us, and we realize our actions speak so loud that people can't hear what we're saying. So let the words complement the actions. The cake is the actions, the frosting is the words, but the substance is the actions. So think well. The quality of life we live and what we, the brand of Jesus that we present to the world, and just know when our identity is in Christ, it's always going to be good. Yes, and amen.